how many times have your listeners like been asked for their opinion, they give their opinion and the decision goes the other way. The impact is like, they didn't value my opinion. This is a, a habit, it's like a human habit. So this matrix says your input is valuable, full stop. It's such low hanging fruit. Just to actually, you can paste it into an email and say, hey everybody, we've identified a decision that needs to be made. Oh my God, people love the transparency. They love to know that they have a role. Welcome back to Building Better Games. You've heard us talk a lot about how important decision-making is as a leader. In our view, it's one of the primary functions of being a leader. We often look at things like clear vision, strategy, and data as a way to help people make more effective decisions every day when we're making games. But to make better decisions, is there value in looking at the actual process of decision-making itself? Have you ever been in a situation where a decision couldn't be made because of a lack of trust? How about spending so much time building consensus that you never actually created forward momentum? Or have you ever felt like it was unclear who should be making a decision or how to find out who had what role in that process? Joining us today is Linda Fain, an experienced consultant, coach, and organization builder in the games industry. We're gonna dig in with her today on the topic of decision-making how it can be particularly tricky in a creative environment, and a couple simple tools she employs with her game team clients to improve their decision-making in a repeatable way. Linda, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. Do we want to kick off with your 60-second sell? <laughs> All right, so I, I actually have a background in creative teamwork. I was a theater stage manager in my early career, so I'd be managing artists and playwrights and designers, et cetera, to get them to a live theater experience on a deadline. I quickly found out those skills are transferable to high tech. And I worked at Microsoft as a interactive media producer at Microsoft Studios for the 2000s. And I've always been fascinated with creative teamwork specifically, and also learning and development. I love helping people learn how to do things, learn skills, get empowered. As a project manager in high tech, I became an expert in agile methodologies and really like lower A agile, which is the mindsets of agility and adaptability. And it's useful for creative teamwork because of the dynamic uh, nature of creative teamwork. So became an agile enterprise coach and then I had a game studio knocking at my door saying, we want someone to help us transform our ways of working to agile ways of working. So that was my introduction to game development. I like interviewed on a Tuesday, Thursday. I started them through a 10-month process of transforming the ways of working that had been held over for a decade of game development from previous kind of smaller games. So I helped them for six years, basically doing the initial transformation to Agile Ways of Working, then helping them to deepen the DNA, so to speak, of, of Agile within all levels of leadership. And I ended up uh, as the uh, organizational effectiveness director there. So then that launched me to running my own consultancy where I get to work with some kind of amazing 
game studios all over helping them at whatever stage of development they're in to get to up level their their leadership, up level their kind of maturity and, and organizational processes. I know you've mentioned the sort of the spectrum of decision making. So what have you seen um, in, in the studios that you've worked with? And I mean, obviously, in part, your model is meant to get away from bad cases. Mm-hmm. But like, what what are the kinds of like, pitfalls you've seen teams run into with decision making? Yeah, and this is that first step, which is adopting a new healthy mental model. So as you said, think about a, a line, a spectrum. On the left side is what we call unilateral decision making. So this is the top down, more dictatorial type. It's where a single leader makes a decision with no input from others. So they legitimately feel like they have all the information they need in order to make the decision. And that comes from, as you said, there's more mature game developer makers that you have a lone leader, they make decisions, and everyone else's job is to follow those decisions. So, and I'm working with a a game company right now that had years of this top-down decision-making, and now they're trying to crawl their way to some other model. So that's where I'm helping them. So unilateral on one side, and then go to the other end of the spectrum is consensus. That's when a group makes a decision only after there's unanimous agreement uh, that's reached by all. Now, just even saying that, we have this aversion. Like, we know game development is rapid, fast-paced, complex. There's no way you're going to get everybody into a room and make the decision that needs to be made. You can make high-quality decisions that way. You just can't make quick ones. So what happens is people have an aversion to that top-down unilateral. They run to the other side consensus. It doesn't work. And then they end up maybe going back to the unilateral thinking that's the only thing to do. So same thing with consensus. It doesn't work for pretty obvious reasons. So what there is, is a mode that is the middle way. And in my opinion, this mode is the most effective for game development. And it's something that we do organically, but uh, we can get so much more out of it by understanding the concept and acting it intentionally. And that middle way decision-making is what's called consultative decision-making. So there's unilateral consensus, middle way is consultative decision-making. And when I describe it, you'll, you'll understand what this is. It's basically when a decision is made by a leader after input from group members. So this has a hierarchy. There is someone designated as the leader making the decision, but there is a process of where, whereby input is given to that leader by the relevant group members. So that's, you know, we're not compromising crisp decision-making by having everybody and everybody pile on and say that they have to make the decision. We we have a crisp decider and we have a robust set of kind of input um, group members. So that's consultative. That is that is the way forward because you can get speed and quality of decision making. I'll give you the concrete tool that I use to help game studios actually develop and embed consultative decision-making into their everyday. Yeah, perfect. Walk us through the tool. So I put together the concept of consultative decision-making with a tool called the Rapid Decision-Making Matrix, or Rapid Tool. And it was conceived of or 
by the consulting firm Bain and, and Associates. So it's a famous consulting firm. It's called Rapid, R-A-P-I-D, decision-making tool. Completely open source, <laughs> very easy. There's even an HBR article on it. So what I've done is I've put this, started teaching this tool and, and having people embed consultative decision-making. So basically, what is the Rapid framework or Rapid tool? So Rapid is the like acronym for the different roles. This is different than a RACI chart. So for those organizational geeks that know RACI chart, RACI chart, R-A-C-I or R-A-S-C-I, depending on your flavor, tells people what their roles and responsibilities are, kind of static, their static roles and responsibility. Rapid is assigned to specific cross-cutting decisions. So each major decision has a rapid matrix, okay? Mm -hmm. What's an example of a cross-cutting decision in game development? So the pretty typical one and one that I just helped a team through is, should we delay the release of our game to shore up quality? Okay. Mm -hmm. Think about how many disciplines that touches and how it's not always clear who needs to make that decision. So in that type of decision, people need to see transparency. They need to see how the decision was made, who made it, why they made it, so that they can buy in. So this rapid tool or this matrix is literally a table, just a table with two columns and six rows. You know, the top one, I actually put what decision needs to be made. So the matrix would have at the top, what is the decision that needs to be made? Decision is, should we delay our release by six months in order to shore up quality? So then you have each of the roles. And the roles are, the first one is the decider. So it's the D. So there's only one decider. So who, who is the final say? Who has the final say on will you delay the release by six months in order to shore up quality? There's someone's name designated. Then there's the role called agreeer. And agreeer, think about them as veto power. They actually can veto whatever the recommendation is. In reality, what it means is the recommendation needs to be changed to incorporate their points of view. So the agreeer, you have one decider. Agreeer, you should have no more than three. Like it's one to three agreeers. These are people who have hard power to affect the recommended decision. Then this is the most important bucket. It's the inputters and it's the I. And I actually call them expert inputters. I just got used to that. So expert inputters is where the, the majority of people fall that have something valuable to contribute to the decision, whether it's data, whether it's experience, whether they're the ones doing the work and they need to be bought in. So what you do is when you're you actually intentionally craft a process for this decision to be made, really lightweight. So you have your decider, you have your agreeers, you make sure you have the expert inputters that have that knowledge to make the best decision. And then the other two roles are recommender, or I call it the driver. That's a person who's kind of project managing this decision. So they might be the one really passionate, like, oh God, we need a decision. Hello, everybody, we need a decision. Are we going to delay by six months in order to shore up quality? That person is the recommender, just one person. They're managing the process. And lastly, there's what the tool calls performer. And those are the, the individuals who actually execute the work. 
In game development, I don't worry too much about the performer role because it's pretty obvious. It's kind of based in the established hierarchy. But the most important thing is those three things, the decider, that one to three agreeers, and then the expert inputters. And what we do is this matrix, this table, creates amazing crisp clarity. It's such low-hanging fruit. Just to actually, you can paste it into an email and say, hey, everybody, we've identified a decision that needs to be made. We've negotiated who's in what roles, and the driver will get to you or the recommender will get to you with next steps. You have been designated an expert inputter, so we want to make sure we get your feedback. Oh my God, people love the transparency. They love to know that they have a role. The most important function it actually does kind of subtly is it tells the expert inputters that they have a role of input, but they're not necessarily the decider. Culturally, this is the most important kind of lever here is people in game development have confusion about giving input and then separately their input being actually implemented. Those are two different activities, as you know. So in order to be heard, people's input, they give input, you can say we've been heard. But that doesn't necessarily mean we will do what your input says. So what happens is people, if you distinguish those, you develop trust rather than breaking trust. I mean, how many times have your listeners like been asked for their opinion, they give their opinion and the decision goes the other way. The impact is like, oh, well, they don't value. They didn't value my opinion. This is a, a habit. It's like a human habit. So this matrix actually distinguishes, says your input is valuable, full stop. And these deciders and agreeers are the ones that actually formulate the final recommendation. Then you're getting that input without setting the unrealistic expectation that contradictory and all of the, the inputs will be actually accepted and executed on. So there's a question I have about this related to the selection of these roles. And it's almost like, okay, well, so we had some big decision. We had a cross-cutting decision we, we have to make. And there is something to this process, right? It's not just, oh, everybody automatically knows what to do. It's like, hey, we have to, like a recommender has to be like, hey, this is a decision. I think it would be helpful to use the consultative framework and specifically the rapid framework to do this. So let's figure out who our decider is, who our agreeers are, who our inputters are, right? That sort of thing. And again, I like that you focus in on those three roles. The first thing that comes to mind is, can it just kick the decision up where suddenly everybody's arguing about who the decider or agreeers should be? Like, have you seen that ever spiral out? How do you deal with that when it, if you have a group of people that were struggling to make a decision, you recommend rapid, and then they're like, well, wait, now we can't find, now we're just arguing about a different thing, who would be the decider or the agreeers and whatnot? Yes. So Ben, you know, the, the reason why people keep this fuzzy is because of the interpersonal discomfort of saying, this person's the decider and you're not. It's better to have that interpersonal discomfort up front when you're actually in a calm, logical way, determining who the best person is to make the decision. So because you're focusing on the process versus the content of the decision, like you're stepping back, you're using more of your logic and you have to make arguments for why so-and-so should be the decider. I can tell you that in my experience, I found that people click into the, a really enlightened state of mind when they're, decide, when they're actually intentionally 
making a decision about who decides it. So for instance, you have the creative lead and you have maybe the, the business lead. They're both making arguments, but they're making logical arguments. They're not doing it based on emotion or I'm the boss of you. Like there's something about this process that brings out the, the best, most en enlightened qualities, I can say in, in my experience. So this, and it's so lightweight and it's also very flexible. Let me give you an example of of how we ended up using this in a, in a really effective way. We actually started embedding this rapid framework into each phase of a green light process. So the releases each went through a green light process and that green light process had three phases. The first one was goal setting. The second was concepting. And the third one was feasibility. So like the decision is, should we green light this release? You don't just make one rapid for that. You do a rapid for the goal setting phase. And the decider would be the general manager. Like it's more the business lead figures out the goals. The concepting, the decider switched to the creative team. So it would be the game director was the final decider on the concepting phase. Then when we moved to feasibility, it became the executive producer that became the decider. So it flowed nicely, it made sense, it gave clarity at each phase who has the weighted, W-E-I-G-H-T-D, the who has the weighted, what's called weighted believability, it's kind of a geeky term, but who has the weight in that decision. So there was the goal setting, concepting, and feasibility. And then the agreeers and inputters uh, flowed from there is in, in order to make the best decision about the concepting. So it became very collaborative and it made sense more than anything. My concern is this. What happens when you don't trust the decider? Like what happens when the team doesn't get along? And part of the reason they don't get along is because they feel that there's no higher vision that they're clear on, that they're accountable to. And so almost what they do is they default back to their sort of tactical opinions. And in fact, like I've seen teams with no clear decision-making frameworks make very expeditious decisions because they were so incredibly aligned on what goals they were trying to achieve collectively. But albeit rare, like super rare to the point where I think you probably need both. You want the alignment and you want the decision-making framework. But I'm curious, like, when you hear that, like, what comes up for you, Linda? Because I'm like, where does alignment play into all this? Because it's that's usually a big gaping hole we see in studios. Well, there's a couple layers to that. I can only tell you that trust is, and, and I work with teams in building trust. Trust has to be a part of everything. This tool doesn't solve for trust. And this is where we tend to want to pile on or laden really simple tools with a lot of stuff. This answers the question if there's confusion about who makes a decision. So like you wouldn't use this tool in that example you said where everyone's aligned and they made really like it's not needed. I haven't worked with those teams lately, but they're rare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I probably wouldn't. So it's really just fit for purpose. So I like to say there's three reasons not to use the rapid matrix. One is where there's no decision. There's no confusion about um, who should make the decision and who should be involved. So that's that example you said, like this tool solves confusion. If there's no confusion, don't add any layers of process onto it. That's not the purpose. 
The second one is if, if this decisions whose authority is already established through a functional hierarchy. For example, our discipline, you know, there is specific kind of decisions based on art style, etc. That's in the realm of the art hierarchy, meaning the senior artist would make the decision for the junior artist, etc. You don't need the rapid tool for that. Like it's an established hierarchy. Thirdly, the decisions already follow a clear path of precedence. So if, for instance, you're calibrating PVP weapons, you know, you've got uh, people complaining one's too powerful, and then you have a clear precedence, well, then you kind of nerf one side of it, you balance it. Like, you don't need to go up to the hierarchy, you don't need to create a rapid matrix around should we balance these weapons, for instance. So those three things, if there's no confusion, if the authority is already within hierarchy, or if there's precedence, you don't need the tool. I loved how you called that out like this. It doesn't it doesn't solve all the problems of the world. But what it can do is when you do have one of these large cross cutting decisions and you are struggling to understand different opinions are in the air and different people are saying different things. And it's like, wait a minute, coming all the way back to what you said at the start. Is there a decision we need to make? And if so, who owns that decision? Who is accountable for that decision? I am left with the question about the nature of the agreeers. And in many ways, like when you described that, I almost thought of it like a team stakeholder. I'm curious about how, like, if you've seen that and is that, you know, one of the things we used to say at Riot is consensus is we agree, alignment is we agree to do it. And is that sort of like, hey, if you're a decision maker and agreeer around a decision, this is the frame you need to take, right? We might not go just the way you want, or is it something else? Yeah, well, what's interesting is the simplicity is, and I love what you say about explicit, versus implicit. At least the tug of war over who's an agreeer is happening transparently and happening within an agreed upon process. Mm -hmm. Normally that happens behind the scenes and it just gets ugly and it becomes who's ever more powerful. And that's previously example where I said where people were just piling on emails, giving these detailed, exhaustive arguments trying to win, so to speak, Mm -hmm. that didn't get anywhere. So there's obviously going to be a conversation and the, the agreeers, that's why there's like one to three. So you can, if there's somebody that's like, I really need to be an agreeer, you can allot that to them. Again, being fit for purpose, if the decision is engineering focused, for instance, you, you want to make sure that an engineer is an agreeer. If it's more business side of it or the monetization or commercialization, like that person would be an agreeer. So it just gives them a little extra power. I do want to talk about how this this actually enables the behavior, the healthy behavior of disagree and commit. Okay. So in consensus, there's agree, like everyone has to be unanimous. You tell me where that's going to that actually happens, where everybody is actually unanimous. I mean, there's, in reality, people have different points of view. So this model, the consultative model, acknowledges that. And it actually, it encourages people to express those passionate views. But once it's gone through this really transparent, healthy process, where the decision has been considered, that all the viewpoints have been entered, the agreeers have have helped with the driver to shape the recommendation, the decision is made, there is more likelihood that people 
will commit even though they have an opposing opinion. Because the process was transparent, the process was balanced. That's one of the um, benefits of applying the rapid framework is that it balances power and getting the best possible decision made. So once people, and this is where trust is, is a wonderful side effect, I love that, that people are more likely to disagree and commit if they are bought into the process mm-hmm. by which the decision was made. Right. I may disagree, but I understand how you got there. So I feel like I can trust you. Exactly. Yeah. And you've showed your work. All of the the recommendation, the agreeers have contributed. There's diligence in showing why the decision was made. That helps to develop that muscle. And that's where trust, that then it becomes really second nature. And then just goodness, goodness happens from there. But it starts with that being explicit. So even though you're disagreeing, you're disagreeing within a healthy, agreed upon framework. Now, we've talked about this at one point in the past, but I wanted to bring it up again. You mentioned how long did it take to go from, I'm seeing decision making as a challenge. Okay, I think we need to move towards the consultative model. I think this particular framework, especially for larger decisions, because like you said, it's okay to have an organic consultative model if that works, like you're on a team, you don't need to do this for everything. But like, hey, the rapid framework is something that's helpful. And you just described a situation where without you initiating it, they themselves saw the use of it and said, hey, I feel like we're, we're about to just start all yelling at each other in an unhealthy debate conflict way. Let's turn it into a more healthy decision-making process. Let's use rapid. What was the delta in time between you kind of spotting the problem and figuring out how you wanted to resolve it and getting it to the point where it was actually a, a muscle, like a, a developed muscle within the organization? Well, it really obviously depends on how sick people are of wasting time in circular conversations. Like the measure to actually adopt it, the measurement of time is equated to how the other way of doing it becomes obviously a non, like not effective. Mm -hmm. So it's the change management aspect. That's why when I help introduce any kind of change, that's what I do a lot in game studios, I start with selling the problem. What is the problem caused by not doing anything? Mm -hmm. People will just naturally just want to kind of not do something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Humans. Inertia. Inertia is is, is the best driver. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So where I could get traction, it really also depends on who is introducing it and, and how impactful. But... When I introduced it, I did not need to make the case about why the previous pile-on emails were ineffective use of time and energy. So once that was pointed out, and then you just, that's why the simplicity of just asking, is there a decision to be made? Who's a decider? That pierces through that fog and it becomes something that people come to on their own. So I would say that For the leadership team for the large studio, I would say introducing it, what I did is I did a roadshow on it. I also did, had a wiki page. I, yeah, with the roadshow to various teams. So they, the leaders that saw the value really started adopting it. And then you can't get away from it. It's like, who's the decider here? Mm -hmm. And then we embedded it in the green light process. I would say that whole thing maybe took five months, five or six months. Mm Mm-hmm for it to then become the thing you do 
where you have a lower tolerance for confusion mm -hmm. and just making seeing the value of making it explicit. There's one, one more thing I want to cover is this idea of accountability. What happens when somebody makes a bad decision or a group of people make a bad decision? Like that question, I think, matters. And, and of course, you know, again, the reason why everyone freaks out at the term accountability is because they automatically hear what I'm saying. They're like, oh, we're trying to figure out who we're going to punish. And I'm like, no, not necessarily. But like, what are the consequences that we as an organization enact when a bad decision is getting made? Because I can see it solving the problem from both angles. If the decider is accountable for the outcome of the decision, then they don't that they're now disincentivized to just like shirk it off onto somebody else. Yeah. Right. Like if, if it's going to come back to you, you better make sure you're invested yeah. in the decision that was made. Otherwise you're going to pay the price for that at some point. Right. And then similarly speaking, if somebody does have the authority of the decider or they are constantly overriding or vetoing as an agreeer and bad outcomes are coming from that, What's the sort of learning lesson that the organization gives to them or provides to them? I think all of this has to happen within a culture that rejects perfectionism. Mm -hmm. So even the decision-making muscle is something that you build over time through trial and error. So I get a little bit, I don't want to say annoyed, but I have a, a bad reaction when people talk about mistakes. Like people say, I made this mistake, when in reality, they made the best decision based on the information they had at the time. And then they learned new information and that decision was not the best. We mistakenly call that a mistake when it really is learning, basically learning from our failures. So the first thing is accountability needs to be within a framework of continually learning and not somebody made a mistake and they are now a non-person or whatever is the worst fear. The thing about determining and being explicit about the decider increases the accountability. And if your name is on it, you're going to make sure that process of inclusion of all the voices is authentic and actual. You want to make sure everybody's who's been designated an inputter has gotten their feedback to you, you've considered it, you've taken the recommendation from the recommender and the agreeers, and you've made the decision. It's completely transparent. There's no mystery. So if that decision turned out to be wrong, you've shown your work so you can actually go back with everybody involved in the process and say, where did we make a mistake? Did we we didn't include engineering, for instance, as an agreeer. Um, so then you can adjust. And that's what we did when we embedded it in the um, green light process is we had to tweak things if we found out that we didn't have enough, it didn't have the right voices in the room. So then the, there is a decider. And I can't tell you how helpful it is for accountability for someone's name to be on a decision. Mm -hmm. It's going to help them be a better leader also because they can say, I have faith in this process. This recommendation came to me. I've looked at all the things. I made the trade-offs. This is the decision. And then later on, if there's new information, they can say, well, there's new information. Let's put that in. And then 
we can remake the decision. Yeah. So it, it has to be iterative. So I just, so accountability is there because it's explicit. Someone's name is there and that's really valuable. People need to know who to hold accountable, but also from the person, from the leaders who is accountable, they get to publicly learn what I call public learning and be explicit. Say the, this is the process we went through and it, the outcome was not a great decision, but this is how we're going to do it better next time. There was one more that I wanted to ask, and it was around objections. Like when you've tried to roll this out, have you seen objections to the model? Like the one I could see people coming up with, and and again, I think we talked a little bit about it already, but the biggest objection that pops to my mind, rational or not, is, oh man, now we're adding this process over everything we ever do, and it's going to slow us all down, and it was supposed to make us faster, and shoot, you know, what's that? But I'm curious how you respond to that and also what objections have you seen, or if there are others, to this model and, and how have you overcome them? Well, you know, that that scenario you're saying, like, you're talking to someone who's led organizational change in game development for years. So the almost universal reaction is, oh, no, another process. No, like there's an allergy to, I would say, like, adopting some more professional ways of doing things. And, and I'm, I'm using that word very specifically. So I understand it because guys, we're talking about creative companies and so much of the kind of leadership tools and frameworks are corporate <laughs> So I get that there's an allergy and I understand it because I've led creative teams all my life. There's an allergy to corporate fuckery, which is like interventions that are unnecessary that will remake a creative company so it's like a a bank or something like the creative industries are different than other creative industries in a really powerful unique way that's why I'm I really love working in creative companies so there's there's definitely an allergy built in the way that any change agent needs to approach it is not tell people why this is a great tool but get them so exhausted or get them to see how exhausting it is to just try to do things the way they've always done it. Mm -hmm. If I'm not getting traction on something, sometimes I just step back Mm -hmm. and let them feel the pain of not doing it. And then when they come back, there's intrinsic motivation. So I, I never push anything. What I do is I listen, I understand and understand how organically they work and then try to add an expert nudge here and there that will work with that organic instinct that they have, but get maybe some more explicitness around it. And this this fits into that. So bottom line, any process is valuable only if it saves time over not doing the process. So, hey, if you want to spend hours and hours writing an email with perfect argumentation and punctuation that just goes into the ether and makes no impact. Good luck with that. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Linda. This was a really fun conversation today. For everyone listening, I want to wrap this up. So we have seven takeaways for you today. Lucky number seven. A little more than usual, but they're all good. Here we go. Number one, two typical and not great models we see for decision-making at game companies historically, we call consensus-based and unilateral or dictatorship. These are sort of two extremes of the scale that Linda described, and she's suggesting a middle way as an alternative. 
Number two, when the organization is struggling with the amount of time and energy spent making big decisions, this is, might be a great time for you to try using the rapid decision-making framework. Number three, there are three key roles in the rapid decision-making framework, the decider, the agreer, and the inputter. How these roles interact is the secret sauce of the method. Number four, this framework is not designed to solve broader alignment or trust issues, although the knowability and transparency of the approach can absolutely build trust. Number five, three situations where you might not want to use this method. When the team doesn't have any confusion on how to make decisions, when there is plenty of precedent about what a good decision looks like, or when it's within your existing authority structure, i.e. design leads making design calls. Number six, accountability is ideally built into this model and is a great way to close the loop and improve after a decision has been made. And finally, number seven, if you want to drive this kind of change at your organization, focus a little less on introducing process and instead draw the team's attention to the exhaustion they're feeling with doing things the old way. Linda, anything you want to say in summary and anywhere you want people to head to online or elsewhere? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the, the podcast and I appreciate this discussion. You know, I really just want to emphasize that this, this is just one tool. There are many tools. I've found that it works specifically well in game studios. Like it's pretty low hanging fruit, the effort it takes and the impact, the positive impact is just outsized. So I'm just giving my own experience. I will put links in the show notes so people can check out the consultative decision-making as well as rapid framework. And I hope that people find benefit of this. I invite anybody interested to link in with me. I'll accept your LinkedIn request and we'll keep the conversation going. And again, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming. We really appreciate it. Did you enjoy this content? Every two weeks, we will deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a great game straight to your inbox. Join game developers across the world and sign up for the Building Better Games newsletter at www.buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Again, that's www.buildingbettergames.gg newsletter. Thanks for listening.